welcome to A Cry for Kelp with me, Nick Woodens, where I interview the movers and shakers of the seaweed industry. Today on the pod, I'm delighted to have Dr. Kyla Orr, a marine scientist, ecological consultant and kelp farmer. Dr. Orr has a PhD from the Scottish Association for Marine Science with a thesis exploring the effects that wild harvesting kelp has on the ecosystem. Through her consultancy, Marine Ecological Consulting, she has worked on high-profile projects with organisations such as Seafish, Marine Scotland, the International Union for Conservation of Nature and the Scottish Creel Fishermen's Federation. Along with two colleagues, Alex Glasgow and Martin Welsh, they created Kelp Crofting, an 11.5 hectare kelp farm in the waters off the Isle of Skye, where they hope to create a sustainable, affordable community model that can be replicated around the coast of Scotland, stimulating coastal economies and highlighting the many benefits of kelp. We talked about life as a kelp farmer, what it was like to get started in the first place, her perspective on some of the claims made about the benefits of kelp, her predictions of the future and what she wished she had known before starting the farming part of her career. So, without further ado, let's hear from Kyla. Hello Kyla, how are you? Hi Nick, I'm fine, thanks, and you? Yeah, good, thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. Um, it was kelp farmers that were sort, of, sort of made me think that I wanted to get into this industry. But I'd love to understand, before we start talking about that, what was your journey prior to starting kelp crofting? Okay, um, well, I'm a marine scientist, or marine biologist by training. Um, I grew up in South Africa and did my undergraduate and honours and master's degree over there. Then I moved to Oban on the west coast of Scotland um, and did my PhD at the Scottish Association for Marine Science. Um, and the topic of that was um, basically the, the ecological impacts of using seaweed for biofuel. Um, and that was in 2009 um, and it was a very interesting research question because um, at the time there was a lot of interest in in finding alternative um, sources of, of fuel um, and seaweed farming had been what I was originally going to do my PhD on but there weren't any seaweed farms in Scotland at the time to actually collect data from. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so uh, I ended up doing doing research on stormcast seaweed. That's the stuff that washes up on the beach um, after a big storm and yeah. what, what the impacts would be of removing that in very large quantities from beaches. And the overall finding was that it, it, it plays a very important role in our ecosystem um, because the seaweed basically rots down and provides food for other other life, um, like invertebrates, um, flies and little crustaceans and shrimp um, that are then fed on by bigger things um, further up the food chain, like fish and birds. Um, and so the conclusion was it's not a good idea to harvest it in large amounts from the wild. Um and that finished in 2013. Um, and then I moved up to a little village called Plockton in the remote uh, sort of north islands of Scotland um, and started working as an independent consultant, um, mostly in fisheries related work and some conservation and management work. And very much moved away from seaweed um, and spent a lot of time um, working with fishermen on data collection projects and fisheries management projects and mm -hmm. um, looking for uh, basically trying to, to improve the management of our uh, coastal waters and, and the way that we utilise our fisheries resources. Um, 
And then then all of a sudden <laughs> COVID started. Before COVID, there was Brexit. Um, so the sort of double whammy of COVID and Brexit pretty much ground the fishing industry to a halt. Oh, right. um, the the boats couldn't go to sea um, because there was no one to sell prawns and lobsters and crabs and things to on the continent because no one was going out to restaurants anymore because of COVID. Um, and uh, sorry, by the way, the majority of our shellfish caught in Scotland gets um, sold to um, the European markets. Um, uh, and then also with Brexit, it became very, um, there, there are all, all sorts of restrictions um, introduced on exporting um, shellfish, basically, and fish. And okay. uh, so, I, so I didn't have much fisheries work anymore because the fishermen weren't fishing. The funding wasn't coming in because of, um, uh, to some extent, because of Brexit. And um, I had a bit more time on my hands. Um, and that was um, pretty much coincided with when seaweed farming became um, really topical and, I suppose, trendy. And it was on the um, it was on the rise in the media. Lots of people were talking about seaweed as a future food and feed. Um, and there were more companies cropping up that wanted to use seaweed as a as an ingredient. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also a, a, approached by Martin, who's who's now our um, business partner partner at Kelp Crafting, um, who was interested in growing seaweed to put in or kelp in particular, um, to put in salmon farms um, as a habitat for cleaner fish. And the cleaner fish are the little rats that go and eat the lice of the salmon, um, and it's a very stressful environment for a cleaner fish to be in in the middle of a salmon um, pen. And yeah, he found that if you put seaweed and kelp in the pen with the wrasse, then they have a much higher survival rate. And so he asked me if I could help him grow some kelp. And all of these things aligned in about 2020. And we thought, well, now seems the right time to set up a seaweed farm. And so kelp crofting was born. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah. I'm so interested. This is, I mean, there's so many different factors here. Um, that have played into it, but but may I just dig in? What was the initial thing? Why were you interested in seaweed? Or you know, when you first came over from South Africa, what was it that had grabbed your attention, and why did you want to do your PhD around it in the first place? There's, a, there's an assumption that I moved here for the subject at hand, which is seaweed. <laughs> you, um, one of the main reasons why marine scientists move across the world to random places is because of it's normally because of love. Or something I like see. that. <laughs> Love or money. In this case, it wasn't money. So, um, yeah, my my partner at the time moved over to London, um, to the Natural History Museum. And I said, well, I'm not staying in South Africa. And I'd been as a consultant for about a year in South Africa and thought, actually, it's way more fun being a student. Yeah. Um, so I started looking for work and looking all around the UK and then saw this PhD post advertised in Oban. And um, thought, well, Oban's pretty close to London. <laughs> <laughs> having never driven the roads and South Africa all roads are long and straight right um, and it's much quicker to get around and so I had uh, applied and had the interview I've, I obviously you know I found the topic really really interesting and that's why I applied and got the post um, and then it went from there I really hadn't had much to do with seaweed before doing my PhD right. um, I did my masters on heavy metal contamination in estuaries ah. and I did my undergraduate in um, the use of marine sponges as anti-cancer drugs so it's, it was completely new to me 
um, and uh, very much changed the direction um, of my of my future. And, now, and here you are running a, a kelp farm. Uh, uh, can you give me a brief explanation of of the plan for kelp crofting? And uh, you know, if you can, just sort of just the top level stuff and uh, about how you got it off the ground because it's it's no easy, mean feat to to start a kelp farm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it, when we started, I don't think we ever intended to have a full commercial operation but the, the, the we wanted to experiment a little bit with growing seaweed and experiment with the new products and markets but the way the licensing is set up in Scotland you can't have a experiment or an R&D short-term license you need a full marine license um, and full lease um, and um, they would last up to for example seven years for a marine license and possibly up to 15 years for the lease so we, we went from wanting to just try and play around with growing a bit of seaweed to having to think where do we want to be in seven years time if that's what our lease is if that's going to be the length of our lease because it's quite an arduous process applying for it you may as well apply for something that you want to keep going for the next seven years where do we want to be in seven years time i mean we, we really want to be a um a fully functioning vertically integrated business where we grow our own seed we do some of our own processing and we have some of our value added products um but the the amount of energy and effort and time that it's going to take to get there is a lot more than we ever originally anticipated. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's understandable. It's a, it seems like an extraordinary, um, intensive, time-intensive uh, pursuit. Can you give me sort of a, a picture of the, of the day in the life of a kelp farm? And I appreciate it's seasonal, but... Um, well, daily, it is, like you say, it's very seasonal, so... I mean, my day can be anything from spending half the time on the computer doing accounts and uh, writing funding applications, business plans, to the other half of the day prep washing a container. Um, and when you run a small business, then you end up having to do pretty much everything. Um, and uh, we're a team of three, so it's myself, um, Martin Welsh and Alex Glasgow. And one of the reasons why we managed to get off the ground so quickly is because each of us have um, quite specific skills that allowed us to function from day one very well. So um, Martin is a fisherman. He's got um, decades of seagoing experience. Um, and Alex is a, a crofter, a landscape ar architect, and very ecologically minded and is brilliant at building things and bits of equipment. Um, and I brought in the marine science side of things. So we're all, you know, but we all we all chip in. So, for example, a typical harvest day, we're up at six in the morning. We're all out, you know, on, on the boat out to the farm to start harvesting for eight, nine o'clock in the morning. Um, some days we'll only get home at nine o'clock at night during harvest. And the next day um, it'll be straight into processing. Um, so harvest season, you're working 12 hour days. You're barely coming indoors turn on your computer um, and then when that harvest season's over then it's the massive backlog of admin and paperwork yeah. and <laughs> tidying up and now is the quite the quiet time for us you know june july we're all just catching our breath so can you give me the idea of the seasons give us an idea of the the, the kelp farmers year so we normally get our hatchery going in about september and that's where we start cultivating the seed on string in in aquarium tanks and then um, around about October, you transfer that seed to the lines at sea. And that's very weather dependent because you do need completely glass flat seed to transfer the seed easily. 
Um, and then it grows um, over the winter and you start harvest in about the last week of April and then harvest through May. So, um, yeah, that's that, that's an annual cycle. And um, we tried to leave seaweed in the water longer and harvest later, but then it gets covered in a really undesirable biofouling, like snails and smelly little jellyfish and shrimps. And um, it, it, you completely lose the value of your crop. Right. Okay, that's cool. That gives me an understanding of your year. And then, you know, get, let's get back to, to, to kelp crofting itself. So you, you, you guys got together, you started. Did you get much support or, um, from the government or from, you know, any councils or even just sort of academic support? What were your sources of information when you were starting? Okay. Um, yeah, in terms of how to set up a seaweed farm and how to run a seaweed farming business, I mostly looked to the east coast of America. Um, there's a, a lot of online um, open source literature on seaweed farming that you can download. And so read their manuals um, page for page um, to have a better understanding of how to set up a hatchery and how to install a seaweed farm. And then um, we received, applied for funding um, on multiple occasions and received um, funding from uh, Highlands and Islands and the Scottish Government and Scottish Edge to help with purchase of capital equipment um, and then have also worked on some innovative projects um, that were funded by Innovate UK um, and have also collaborated with researchers on data collection for things, you know, to understand trends in biofouling, for example, and how that might spoil our crop and when are the best times to harvest? I see. So yeah, we well, we have received support. Yeah, that's awesome. So we've had to, you know, we've had to go out looking for it. It doesn't just land no, on your lap. Of course, it's a job in itself, isn't it, to just go after the funding? It's a huge job. Yeah, yeah. And I think I, I mean something worth really emphasising is that it's um, almost impossible to get 100% funding. Um, they normally require either 30 or 50% match funding or even more. So even once you found that funding, you then either need to find match funding or, or try and pull in the funds yourself. Did you get any private investment, Scottish private investors community who were, who were keen to back you? Yeah, we've had we've had a lot of interest from investors, um, and at the moment we are um, we're just holding off on investment until we have basically rewritten our vision and strategy. Um, and yeah, um, so that will be something for the and future. What was your hopefully. experience? You know, when you were getting the, the off the ground uh, dealing with the Scottish legislation, you, you mentioned that it's quite a lot to get that seven year lease. You know, does that take? How long did it take you to get that? It took about um, from the the day that we started preparing for it to the day that we were issued our lease was probably about 10 months um okay. and that you know that's yeah. um not an unreasonable amount of time uh i think because i've got a background in um marine consulting and um done a lot of public consultations it made it a slightly less painful process for us than some people um yeah. it's yeah yeah, it can be quite slow if you if you don't have someone helping you out who knows how to go through the licensing procedure. Um, I would say that everything in the license application is absolutely necessary to protect our coastal communities and protect the environment, um, but it, it does slow the process down. Um, and for example, if you want to put a farm into a marine protected area, you really have to provide evidence that you're not going to be impacting um, some sensitive marine life in that area. And that might involve data collection, seabed surveys, um, mapping work. Um, so depending on where your farm's located, it might be more 
or less onerous. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I'd like to just move on to get what you do afterwards. You've, you've, you've harvested your kelp and uh, you do quite a lot of your drying yourself. That's correct, right? We, um, well, we're in the process of developing drying infrastructure. I'd put it that way. So last year we didn't have to do any processing. Um, we handed our seaweed over fresh to the company that then processed it. But in reality, there there aren't really many companies that want to buy fresh seaweed in bulk because it um, goes off so Actually quickly. Degrades quite yeah, well. it degrades yeah. really, really quickly. Um, and how much are we talking though? We're we talking like a day. You couldn't you couldn't get it from Plockton. You couldn't get it from Plockton to Glasgow, for example, it, and and it, and it not have degraded significantly. You could you could get it from Plockton to Glasgow if there was a company in Glasgow that was ready to take fresh seaweed, but there's not. So, like, where is where are these where are these companies that we all you know sort of dream companies that want to take um, ten tons of fresh seaweed um, from one farmer here and ten tons of fresh seaweed from another farmer and it's um, yeah, where are they where yeah where are they Kyla well I, I don't know because I've been looking around trying to get find people to come that, on the podcast that, that's the thing all over the place. there's not well they're, they're not really companies that will take fresh seaweed. Um, in bulk, there, there are companies that take very small amounts of seaweed, like restaurants, for example, or natural right. ingredient suppliers that take 10 kilos here or there fresh. But as soon as you're dealing with bulk product, they want it stabilized. They don't want to deal with um, a highly seasonal industry where they could get 100 tons arriving one day, 10 tons arriving the next day fresh. Um, and it's yeah. all got to get processed in there in factory. So people want stabilized material. And what that looks like is either dried or frozen yeah. or um, fermented is another method that's being used. And you, it's basically um, lowering the pH of the, of the seaweed so that it doesn't decompose. And which is the of of those three processes, which is the least uh, least bad for the uh, for the environment? Because I imagine that that you know they all have their own carbon footprint, right? They do, yeah. And um, that's another thing that's really influencing what we're going to do with our seaweed. So there there are lots of different ways of drying seaweed, and some of them are more energy intensive than others. Um, right. And um, freezing, for example, yeah, that is energy intensive, but a lot of Big cold stores will have a huge solar arrays to offset the energy that they use to freeze um, whatever products coming in. So if there's not there's not a simple answer to that. The um, well, the least energy intensive way is to hang it up in a polytunnel because and just use the sun to dry your seaweed. But in Scotland, you can't guarantee a hot sunny day in May when we harvest. No, you can't. Um, so you you need some you normally need some kind of energy assist um, and airflow to to help it dry. Um, there is this method called ensiling, which is becoming more popular in Norway, where you um, you basically add a bacteria, lactic acid bacteria, to the seaweed after it's harvested, and it lowers naturally lowers the pH um, as the bacteria. It's a good bacteria; it isn't harmful to human health. It lowers the pH of the um, of the seaweed and the, the water that seaweed's sitting in, and that stabilizes the seaweed. And then that can then get processed. But it's very new, and there hasn't been much research done on how long it's stable for, and it can be really variable. And some people have had good results, some people bad. But that is by far the as the lowest carbon footprint for stabilizing seaweed. Okay, that's good. That's good, interesting, and it also it's a good segue because one of one of my big questions uh, I, I'm asking all of my guests is what are the gaps in the market uh, all along the value chain that you wish somebody would come up with 
solutions for? Well, I'd say one gap in the market would be contract processing where um, you know a lot of seaweed farmers don't have the resources, the knowledge to set up processing themselves. Um, there is really no primary processing facilities in the UK. Um, and you can find contract processes for all kinds of other industries in food and farming, uh, whether they're contract milling or contract drying in the aggregate industry or contract freeze drying. But there isn't anywhere that does contract processing for seaweed farming. Um, right. And that really is a gap. Um, you know, if there are rental, mobile rental dryers that could be hired during harvest season, then they would definitely get used by seaweed farmers. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, another gap in the market really is on local product development. So trying to get more seaweed into more products used locally. Um, some other nations are doing better than the UK at this. For example, uh, seaweed's really popular in Germany. They've got um, quite a large number of, of companies manufacturing products from seaweed and people really keen on eating seaweed, but they don't grow seaweed in Germany. Um, but the UK is quite conservative when it comes to our palate, for example, um, and consuming yeah. products with seaweed in. Yeah. So um, if there was more energy and effort put into the local UK market for seaweed, that would help growers as well yeah. offload some of their product. Yeah, you, know, you make a lot of really, really exciting claims in some of the literature that I was reading about you about, you know, how good kelp is as a carbon sink and how good kelp is at cleaning oceans. And, and I, I, you know, I buy, I'm fully bought in. But uh, do you think that therefore we can throwing some money at this from a almost from an ESG funding, you know, environmental social governance funding, uh, just to give you the, the, the nudge? Because it seems like we're in a we're in a chicken and egg scenario here where we're not producing enough kelp there's enough things that would take the produced kelp yeah i know i think i think the processing side of things just has just been overlooked because it's not very glamorous is it (laughs) seaweed farming is incredibly fashionable um it just you know you just feel good when you look at pictures of people lifting golden seaweed out the water Uh, likewise um eating you know eating seaweed products and taking some really lovely photographs of seaweed sprinkled on your, um, you know, sort of organic plant-based fake fish. Yeah, that makes a really lovely Instagram photo. But taking a, you know, trying to draw people's excitement and attention into, I need to set up a little drying cabinet um, or I need to invest in an energy efficient rotary dryer. It's not glamorous and it's not fashionable. It's not trendy. It's so it's been forgotten. Um, and that, and it's also because it's also a sign of a very immature industry. Um, and yeah, looking back and, you know, for 10 years time, we'll probably listen to this podcast and go, yeah, we've now got primary processing. It's not an issue anymore. Um, but, uh, yeah, there just needs to be, there just needs to be more attention focused on the reality of what the industry needs rather than just, um, blindly praising all of the benefits, um, of seaweed, um, that are trendy. Um, so it needs to move, yeah, it needs to move away from just being a trendy thing to talk about and try and do to the reality of how do you actually functionally run this business. Do Do you think the that the first seaweed billionaire is actually going to be a processor of seaweed? Because it sounds like such an important thing. If the person who can nail that, if the first billionaire who is, proce- is a processor, then the farmers will be paid peanuts. So yeah that's good point i mean you don't you need to minimize the profit added to processing for the farmers to be able to be financially viable 
Um, mm. And that's where, for example, setting up community interest companies that run the processing makes a bit more sense because you minimize the profit who goes to, that goes to the processor and you retain the asset within the community. Yeah. Or vert vertically integrated processing where the seaweed farmer owns the processing as well. Um, or some kind of joint venture That's between the seaweed farmer and the processing. But when you have purely, um, yeah, pure, purely like limited companies that are just for processing, they will maximize the profit that they add to the processing, which will minimize the price paid to the farmer. And that could lead to collapse of the industry, or it may require a subsidized industry, like in farming. Is that the way it's going to go anyway? The farmer is subsidized, do you think? Will it need to get it at least to get it off the ground, some kind of subsidies? Well, I think, um, yeah, it does. It, it needs a huge amount of financial investment to get off the ground and it needs support from the government. Um, and it might be better if that came in the form of soft loans, for example, yeah. to prove that, um, you know, for the business, we'll then have to prove that it, it can actually be viable and profitable rather than just throwing money down the drain. Um, and subsidies, yeah, if it becomes a functional food and society relies on seaweeds um, for nutrition and feed and fertilizer, then, yeah, subsidies make sense. Um, and if it's if the environmental claims are are proven, then, yes, it makes sense. But just subsidizing an industry for the sake of subsidizing industry doesn't make any sense. No, of course, definitely not. And I suppose, therefore, that, well, my next question is where which of those products do you think it is that's going to be the, the market, create the market inflection? Is it going to be the fertilizer? Is it going to be cattle feed? I know that doesn't help for kelp, but it does with other things. Or is it going to be food products? What, what do you think is going to be the thing that's going to create the market inflection? Uh, probably a little bit of a mix of everything, and um, it depends on scale. So the, um, the industries where there's a proven market, for example, in fertilizer and um, increasingly in feed, um, they're bulk markets, and so the price is, is, is really low, um, apart from more recently in fertilizer where the prices have gone up. Um, and yeah. most small to medium-scale seaweed farms like ours can't produce seaweed at the price the low price required to enter those markets. So one option is available there, and that's to try and um, mechanize more and industrialize more um, to, to basically produce seaweed more cheaply. The other option then is to have the smaller farms um, like, like our own um, trying to enter higher value markets. So that would be um, food for example. Um, but the food market is less of a ready market. You know, seaweed's still quite niche. So there's quite a limited capacity for that market to take up the amount of seaweed that's going to get produced by small to medium scale farmers. So it, it all comes down to the cost of production and the volumes required and trying to make sure that those two match up. Um, and um, yeah, I can't say which one is going to turn the industry around um, because there's a lot of things that have to develop in tandem. I like to ask that question because obviously, yes, I think you're, you're bang on. It's going to be a collection. But I, I'm also just trying to tease out what is it that your favorite seaweed product? That's probably a better question. Which one do you think is just the most exciting? <laughs> I, think, I think the one that's going to benefit the, the environment the most would be soil improvers. Um, yeah because you can take, I mean, seaweed's excellent at absorbing um, nutrients from the sea and then take, it just makes sense, take that out the sea and transfer it to nutrient-poor soils. Um, and that, that benefits 
uh, humans and it benefits the environment. Um, and if it could work financially, that would be amazing. Um, cattle feed, yeah, possibly, you know, yes, there are benefits there, but there's still debates about which seaweeds are best to use for, for cattle. And some of them aren't particularly good for cattle, some of them are better. Um, and the ones yeah. that we grow aren't really the best for, for cows. No, it's Esporogopsis. I've got, I've got um, somebody from uh, an American company coming on later on to talk about that for feed. And I'm hoping to get one uh, somebody from Kelp Blue okay. who's dealing with the the fertilizers using as fertilizers um i'd love you to put on your your positive cap again and say what is the what are your predictions for the next 10 years for the seaweed industry both in scotland and uk in general and then you know around the world (laughs) my positive predictions um yeah I, i i would like to see the industry grow with the inclusion of communities um i think there's some examples some good examples of that happening um in other parts of the world um and yeah I, I predict that there will be more seaweed um on people's plates and in supermarkets um there's just it's becoming a more common household term um so yeah, yeah i do predict growth in the industry um but that growth is going to it's going to be a bit slower i think than what people are predicting at the moment oh okay um and then finally what would you like to if you were to, if there was a budding kelp farmer listening to this, what would you like them to know that you didn't know when you started? <laughs> it's really hard work. <laughs> That's what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, Kyle. It's, it's not all hard work. You get to pick up beautiful bits of seaweed in the water and do great Instagram photos, right? What could be, what could be hard about that? Uh, it's, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know you need to be prepared for very long hard hours at sea and um yeah big big storms and disappointments when it doesn't go as planned and lots of gear to fix but then also be prepared for yeah the really glorious days um seeing you know looking at your crop growing and it's it's, you know it's contagiously exciting to 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 lift those seaweed lines and see the kelp and um yeah kelp fever i think it's called isn't it oh i like that i've not heard that Um... seaweed fever you just want to grow some more um so they're they're definitely highs and uh, but they they are challenging times and be prepared for those be prepared for the incredibly long hours be prepared for equipment to break be prepared for crew not to show up um right. but that's the challenges of any aquaculture business of course um i when i did the introduction i said you have an 11 and a half hectare kelp farm is, is that the size of it now or is that the size of it in the future uh, that's that's what it could you know that that's the the licensed area and the oh, leased right. area um but we're only operating at, at about 25 percent capacity at the moment so we um have room to to increase our production within that area well well what i'd like to do kyle if i can is get you back on when when you're at 50 percent and then again at 75 and just see if we if you've become more or less positive about life as a seaweed farmer uh, but I, I predict that you will be a lot more happy because I predict people will be buying your help um, and they'll be biting your hands off. That's what I want to see the industry doing. Um, this has been great, Kyla. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat and to give us all a perspective of the highs and lows of uh, what it's like to be a kelp farmer. I wish you all the very best and look forward to having you back in the future. Thanks so much, Nick. Looking forward to listening to it.